Thanks, Paul. And good morning, church. Um, I'm grateful to be here and to have the opportunity to, to share with you and to do the teaching today. Um, it's been a, a, a blessing personally to me even just to prepare and to dive into the scripture today, and I hope that it's, uh, it's also a blessing um, to you. And so we're going to be focusing on the parable of the unforgiving servant this morning, working through our series on Matthew. Um, it's found in chapter 18, Matthew 18. Um, it's good the kids are in the service today. They'll be familiar with it uh, because I think they touched on it last week. So this will uh, just be rehashing that for them. Um, and so this means that we're going to be talking about forgiveness and the implications that God's forgiveness has in our lives and for how we relate to others in forgiveness. And, and we're going to be looking, uh, before we talk about look at the parable. We're also going to be looking at a few verses that come prior to the parable uh, that might, may be familiar to you. They're verses. When you say Matthew 18 in the church leadership context, you kind of get a bit of a trigger. People know that that means church discipline. Um, and, uh, and so it'll be, it's a very popular uh, few verses um, that sets out a parameters for church discipline. I think some pastors uh, will do what they can to avoid, avoid diving into it because it can be a sensitive topic. Um, which I guess Paul has effectively done by having me up here today. Um, but, uh, but I'm not going to get too deeply into it, um, to some of your disappointment, I'm sure. But no, we'll be looking at it really for context to set up the parable itself, um, those few verses ahead. Um, and, and also not, you know, it's, we make light of it. Church discipline is, is, is uh, something that does, it's, it grieves God's heart and it should grieve our hearts so, um, so well. While it's not something that, uh, that we may like to, to dwell on at great length, it is, it is something to, to, to take seriously um, and, and to, uh, to pray over. And so with that, let's dive into the text and read through Matthew 18, verse 15 to 35. Um, if you have your Bibles open, of course, but otherwise feel free to follow along with, on the projector. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy-seven times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of the servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, and seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. 
So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I'll pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me, and should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. I just want to quickly address that last verse before we get into this parable, because it's quite striking. If you're exploring Christianity, if you're new to the faith, if you're young in age or young in faith, it might be tempting to look at that text and and to think that, any slight misstep one time that you do not practice forgiveness means immediate eternal damnation. And I want to just make it clear right out the gate before we get into this text today that that's not what that means. I want you to know that scripture is clear throughout that salvation is secure in Christ. John 5 verse 24, Truly, truly I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sends me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. In Ephesians 2, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Salvation in Christ is not hinged on our works, it's not hinged on anything that we do. And we know from verses 15 to 20 that Christ. Jesus isn't expecting perfection. He's expecting conflict. He's expecting his followers, people who gather in a church much like this, to disagree, to fight for there to be discord and tension. I'm sure not difficult for some of us to imagine. The point being made at the end of this verse and through this text is that if you aren't practicing forgiveness, then you're not gripped by the gospel. It's a symptom of a heart that's not yet softened by the awareness of the grace and forgiveness that we have in Christ. And the gospel is not just another idea or philosophy that we accept intellectually with no actual impact on how we live our lives. It has real implications for how we live and govern our lives. It changes us. It's a putting off of the old self and a putting on of the new in Christ Jesus. And it bears fruit, that new life in Christ, in how we relate to others and how we relate to our spouses, to our friends, how we relate to other students on campus, to our family, to the world around us. God's mercy moves us. His immeasurable grace calls us to live lives of infinite mercy. That's really what this text is about, and we're going to unpack that a little bit more deeply together this morning. And so verses 15 to 20, before getting into the the parable itself, are really about reconciliation within the body of Christ. And it's important to distinguish from forgiveness, because forgiveness is not reconciliation. While reconciliation does involve forgiveness, forgiveness does not necessarily involve reconciliation. So reconciliation is trying to get two or more disputing parties to agree, which requires at least one, sometimes more, 
to be repentant, to confess. Forgiveness does not require the other's repentance or confession. It's not conditioned on the other side's repentance. If it was, the perpetrator would wield the power of withholding repentance over the victim. Forgiveness is unilateral. It's a one-way street. In the Greek, it literally means to let go or to release. Forgiveness is releasing someone from the debt that they owe you, in contrast to the opposite where we make the other person pay. We seize on them through our unforgiveness. You're saying in forgiveness that I'm no longer going to hold on to you. I'm going to release you from my grip. It doesn't mean to forget. It doesn't mean to be naive. It means to let go. And so it's in the context of that teaching about reconciliation and conflict that we get Peter's question. In verse 21, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? So when asking this question, Peter thinks he's being really generous. And so the rabbis at that time, for context, uh, the, the teachers of the law, the Jewish law at that time, or the rabbis in the first century, they taught that one ought to forgive, forgive, and forgive three times. And scholars say, and then that's it. And scholars say that was based on Amos, chapters 1 and 2 from the Old Testament, where Amos quotes God as saying that he will forgive the sins of places and peoples of Damascus, Gaza, Tyre, etc., three times. And the logic of the rabbis at the time was that no one should be more forgiving than God. And so that's the context that Peter and the people around him are talking to Jesus about this. And Peter's asking this question, Um, about how many times we ought to forgive, thinking that three times is the ceiling. That's the max. So if I'm going to ask seven times, that's a lot, right? Like, he was expecting more of a response like, well done, Peter, you're so spiritual and generous. You've obviously been listening. But that's not what he said, right? Jesus says, verse 22, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. And some translations say 70 times 7. So whether it's 70 times 7 or 7 times, those are used interchangeably in, in translations. The point isn't in the mathematical equation, but what the numbers represent. And that would have been absolutely clear to Peter and the hearers of what Jesus was saying at this time. Those would have been very familiar numbers. And it would have been both familiar and shocking to them. And so first, it would have been shocking because they would have understood it to mean infinite. Right? Peter is saying seven times. Like, that's a lot more than three. Expecting the pat on the back. He doesn't get that pat on the back. Because his response is infinite. It's like when you're a kid and you're talking about, you're trying to one-up your friends and you, still, you, know, you, learn, you learn bigger numbers. The, little, the, the bigger they get, the, more they, the bigger the number they learn. And eventually when you realize that there's a number, there's infinity, and that just trumps everything. Right? That was the trump card, infinity. And 70 times 7, or 490, is also 
the numerical value of the Hebrew word tamim, which means complete, perfect, or finished. So in saying that number, Jesus is saying that to withhold forgiveness is to actually live an incomplete life. And it would have been familiar to Peter and the hearers at the time because it's a reference to Genesis 4, where Cain, after murdering his brother Abel, fears for his life. And he's running across the countryside, afraid that he's going to be murdered himself. So God says that he will exact a sevenfold vengeance on Cain if anyone touches him. And then one of Cain's descendants, Lamech, who also has a penchant for violence and a thirst for revenge, tries to one-up that. And he says, If Cain's vengeance is seven times, then Lamech's vengeance is 70 times seven. In other words, that he would outdo God in revenge. And that would have been a very familiar story that's part of the, the Torah, uh, the first five books of the Bible, that people in the first century, especially those people like Peter and a lot of the Jews around Jesus at the time, would have been steeped in. They would have been very familiar with that story of Cain and that story of Lamech. And just hearing that number, that's the only time that that number is referenced in the Old Testament. So that would have been an immediate reference to that, that story about Lamech's revenge. And by referencing that, Jesus is suggesting, suggesting that we should be as eager to forgive as Lamech was to take revenge. As much as he wanted the punishment to outweigh the crime, so should we desire for our forgiveness to outweigh the wrong done to us. And to illustrate his point, Jesus explains with a parable. And he sets the stage with a a servant who has an enormous debt, 10,000 talents. Which to us, you know, nowadays doesn't really mean much, but um, I'll try to give it some some reference. Um, So the Roman province at the time, including Judea, Samaria, Idumea, its annual revenue was 600 talents per year. So this is 10,000 talents. One talent was equivalent to about 6,000 denarii. One denarii was the average salary that a working person would earn in one day. So you need to work 6,000 days to get one talent. This guy's got 10,000 talents of debt. It was enormous. It's insurmountable. Unpayable. That's why it's almost laughable that in verse 26... The servant says, have patience with me and I'll pay you everything. There's no way he was paying that back. It's impossible. And it's a clue about how that servant was out of touch and did not grasp the size of his debt. There's no amount of time or working harder or smarter or Bitcoin that was going to get him out of that debt. And the king was going to have his wife and children sold and all that he had. And so assuming that, another thing I learned as I was diving into this, learning about the value of talents. Apparently, the going rate at the time in the first century for your top-notch slave was one talent. And this, these people were going to be sold. Him and his family were going to be sold um, as slaves. So assuming that they were... 10 out of 10 slaves, they would have been worth one, one talent each. Don't know how many kids he has, but let's 
assume he's got five kids, maybe ten kids, and then the value of his possessions maybe is a few talents, ten to twenty talents will satisfy, the, will not will come anywhere near satisfying a debt of ten thousand talents. It's insurmountable. But the king had compassion. And we read in verse 27, he released the servant, forgave the debt, not asking anything of the servant. He didn't ask him, pay me what you have, just sell everything, give me at least a little bit. He forgives him completely, out of compassion. But that debt doesn't just disappear, right? It would have been, it would have been very painful and incredible for that for that king, for that master, to, to deal with that debt, to forgive that debt, because it doesn't disappear. He has to deal with it, and a debt of that magnitude would have come at an incredible cost. An insurmountable debt requires immeasurable grace. Forgiveness comes at a cost. It's not free. It feels free to the forgiven. It felt free to this servant, and that can make the forgiven, ignorant to the true cost and the magnitude of their debt. God's forgiveness of our sin was painful. It was hard. And the paradox of the gospel is that while forgiveness is not free, it is freeing. It's a freedom that the servant in this parable didn't experience despite being freed. In verse 28, the servant then finds one of his debtors who owes him 100 denarii and seizes him Notice that language of seizing, how that contrasts with the release that he had experienced. I remember we said one Daenerys was a day's wages. The debt that he's collecting is a hundred Daenerys. So not a tiny debt. It's not a dollar, but a hundred days of work worth, but a payable debt. And of course, nothing in comparison to the 10,000 talents that he was just forgiven. And the debtor pleaded with him, verse 29, have patience with me and I will pay you. And that sounds familiar, right? Because those are the exact words that the servant himself just used with the king. But it doesn't receive the same response, despite being a totally payable debt. The servant doesn't release him. He imprisons him, doubling down on seizing him. doesn't forgive the debt. And of course, the king is furious. Verse 32, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me and should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? The servant wasn't governed by gratitude. He was gripped by greed. Ignorant to the cost of his own forgiveness, his heart remained unchanged and so did the way he related to his debtors. He said, great, thanks, master. I'll take your forgiveness. Now I'm going to still... And go pursue my rights and pursue my life according to the way that I want to. I still have my debts collect to collect. And there was a dissonance between the reality of what he had just experienced and the way that he had lived his life. And the expectation of the master is that in the gratitude, in awe and gratitude of his mercy, of just having his debt satisfied and absorbed by the master, that he would then be convicted to extend the same mercy. Forgiveness is not something that God meant for us to just receive, but it's something that he calls for us to embody and to embrace. It's part of what we, we pray every week. Together we prayed earlier in the service today. 
Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And maybe you're sitting here today thinking, and you've, you've been through some real trauma and abuse, hurt and pain, and you're wondering, where's the justice? Is forgiveness just? We've all been wronged at various points of our lives, some different degrees than others. Perhaps a parent has left emotional scars that you're now reckoning with as an adult, maybe a teacher said some very demoralizing things as a teenager that's rattled your confidence. Maybe an employer treated you unfairly, pushing you to the brink, spouses, something that cut to your core, an influential person in your life betrayed a trust. And we want justice, we want vengeance. The forgiveness that you're talking about leaves the debt unresolved. Where's the justice in just saying, I forgive you? The good news of the gospel is that Christ's forgiveness is just because God didn't just ignore the debt of sin. He dealt with it and he absorbed it by sending his son to the cross. Our debt didn't just disappear. To use uh, an analogy from the courtroom, and uh, I'm not, not being selective, I just couldn't find any plumber analogies. This is also, this is a really good one. Um, He's, God's not a judge that exonerates the criminal and then sends everyone on their merry way, leaving the injustice untouched. He's the judge that exonerates the criminal and then walks down from the bench, from the place of judgment, removes his robes, puts on an orange jumpsuit, and serves a sentence. Christian forgiveness is absolutely just. But an important distinction needs to be drawn between justice and forgiveness to really understand the implications of practicing forgiveness in our daily lives. And Miroslav Volf is helpful in this way. He's a Croatian theologian at Yale University who witnessed and experienced and lived through firsthand the ethnic conflict in former Yugoslavia, now Croatia in the 90s. And he wrote in his book called Exclusion and Embrace, The difference between justice and forgiveness, to be just is to condemn the fault, and because of the fault, to condemn the doer as well. To forgive is to condemn the fault, but to spare the doer. That's what the forgiving God does. Wolf goes on to explain that the reason for his position of nonviolence and his ability to forgive the perpetrators of the horrendous violence he was witnessing was rooted in his firm belief and faith that vengeance ultimately belongs to the Lord. And we know that from Scripture in Romans 12, and there's a passage in Romans 12, verse 14 to 21, that I will read these few verses because it creates a beautiful picture of what life looks like when it's governed by the gospel. Romans 12, verse 14, Bless those who persecute you, Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. 
Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Beautiful picture. And so vengeance belongs to the Lord. The knowledge of that ultimate Justice being in God's hands frees us from the need to exact justice in the here and now by our own hands. But that still doesn't make it easy. We still have the hurt and the sorrow and the pain that we feel as a result of the wrongs and the abuses and the injustices that have been inflicted against us. When I forgive someone, I'm becoming the one absorbing that debt. I don't have that kind of bandwidth, you might say. I have serious pain. Well, God has not called us to infinite mercy and then left us to our own devices to carry the weight of that burden or that debt. He invites us to cast our cares on him in prayer and petition. He walks alongside us in our suffering and invites us to let him Carry our burdens. In Matthew 11, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. United to Christ and through the power of the Spirit, we can let go of the grip on our brother's neck, demanding vengeance. Because we find true rest for our souls in the one who has forgiven and absorbed our debt. Who gave a sacrifice so great that it not only absorbs our debt, but the debt of the entire broken world. Christ's forgiveness is cross-shaped. It absorbs our vertical debt between us and God. And it absorbs the burden of our horizontal debt among our brothers and sisters. What a savior. And so, looking back at verse 35 again, it says, So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. What is forgiveness from the heart? Jesus modeled it on the cross. He said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Forgiveness from the heart looks like defending the one who has wronged you. How upside down. How countercultural. And so I encourage the church to take some time today or in the coming days and weeks to reflect on where you might be withholding forgiveness from your life. Who in your life are you struggling to release from the debt that they owe you? Forgiveness isn't one and done. It's infinite. Consider the insurmountable debt that God forgave on your behalf at an enormous cost and invite the work of the Spirit to move you to mercy, casting the pain of that sorrow onto Christ and molding you more into his image. You can have a fervor for forgiveness instead of a lust for revenge. And I'll just close with this text from 1 Peter 2, verse 18 to 24. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. 
For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure? This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Amen. Let's pray.